Welcome to episode 64 of the Scottish Liberty Podcast. I'm Anthony Samaroff, and recently my co-host Tom Laird gave a astonishing speech on the history of libertarianism in Scotland, and I'm going to include that for you, you lucky people, as episode 64 of the Scottish Liberty Podcast. Thanks very much, people. Thanks to you all for turning out. Some of you came a distance and uh, appreciate it. I am, whoever's watching on YouTube when this ends up there, if you clicked on it because you think you're going to see a speech by Ben Kingsley, you're going to be disappointed. Uh, so anyway, uh, it's time honoured at this part to say how great it is to be here, but I mean, I've been, I was on a 12-hour night shift up until 7 o'clock this morning and I've still not been to bed yet, so in terms of places it's great to be, my bed's looking pretty good, um, but it is a tremendous privilege and I'm honoured to be asked to come and, uh, and do this talk with you uh, and talk also a little bit about the party that I've been privileged and honoured to lead for the last uh, seven months. It's only been that, seven, eight months, really. It's been, it's been that short. Um, so thanks to Abby for organising this. Thanks to Fraser for, uh, for doing the tech stuff. Uh, really appreciate that, Fraser. Um, and thanks, I'll take this opportunity as well to thank, we, as uh, you may know, we had candidates running in the, uh, the local elections recently. Um, and that was unprecedented. We had, uh, how many in total? 11? Was it, was it that many? 21, good, good lord, 21. So we had, uh, we done okay, you know, for a, for a small party. Uh, first time out, really. Um, so I want to thank uh, all those that were involved in organizing that. Uh, Peter, yourself, yourself, uh, Daniel, <laughs> Daniel for getting 99 votes. Uh, did you get your 99 red balloons in the post? No. It was actually 99 blue and yellow balloons, but never received them yet. Okay, I'll get on it. Uh, thanks to him, uh, and thanks to Stevie McNamara, our guide down in Kilmarnock, who's running a tremendous show. Uh, if I had ten more Stevies in the party, uh, you know, would be would be going good guns. We are going good guns, but would be going even better because the guy's a powerhouse. So thanks to him, and thanks to everybody that made that possible. Uh, I've been asked to give you a talk today on libertarianism in Scotland. I'm tempted to say, have a look around the room. <laughs> and uh, and this is it. But it's not quite that simple. There's a lot more of us out there. Uh, we do meet them from time to time. They come to the meetups. Uh, we've had them at the AGM. Um, so there's, there's, there are plenty of libertarians in Scotland. When Murray, was it Murray Rothbard that was asked how many libertarians he thought there was? And how many did he think there was? 24 in the world? Yeah. Okay, so there's at least 24 in the Scottish Libertarian Party. There's more than that, actually. We're doing very well. Um, considering that three years ago, four years ago, there's maybe one or two years meeting in a pub regularly. I used to look at the web page forlornly, you know, like every every month, every you know, every week, even, like, and there'd just be nothing happening. None happened for about two years. 
and then all of a sudden things came together and I'd like to thank John Watson actually uh, who's not here today who was party secretary at one time for the sterling work he did the reason I'm involved the reason I'm here today and the reason probably we're all here today is because of John Watson so I'd like to thank him for that if he ever get, if he gets to see this and thanks to the previous leaders as well for doing their bit Alan uh, Mark and of course Logan uh, who was the original uh, libertarian in Scotland who got this whole ball and roll if you've not met Logan he looks like he uh, stepped out of a movie about the wild west uh, and he, he started a, he's way back in the day he started a branch of the SNP uh, in America uh, but that was that, that's some time ago um, okay so I'm going to talk to you about libertarianism in Scotland uh, I'll have a wee delve into the past first of all well Scotland first of all we're, we're the oldest kingdom in Europe or arguably the oldest kingdom in Europe uh, there's a few that claim that title but I mean when you consider England wasn't even a, a kingdom uh, you know there were still warring factions Alfred the Great still had this dream of England when Kenneth MacAlpin had already been King of Scots. And that's an interesting uh, sort of unique thing about Scotland. The King of Scotland was not actually the King of Scotland. He was the King of Scots. It's an important difference. The idea that he would be King of the land and ruler of the land itself was something that came from the Normans. It wasn't something that was here in Celtic Scotland. Um, so yeah, so what's our libertarian credentials? Well, you could take it back to the Declaration of Arbroath, 1320. Um, there's, there's the seeds, there's the beginning of libertarian ideas, the, at least the idea that your ruler was accountable to you. You know, in that declaration uh, that was signed in Arbroath, it was really a letter to the Pope because, you know, Scotland was under the cosh from Edward I and what they wanted to show was the legitimacy of Scotland as a separate entity to the Pope. You know, it wasn't just a region, region of England. The, the Pope had had misinformation from Edward, who was in fact the son-in-law of Philip the First, of uh, Philip the Fair of France, and there was probably two papacies at that time, and Philip was in control of the one in Avignon. Uh, sorry, yeah, Philip was pretty much in control of the papacy. So. Uh, Edward I was his son-in-law and, you know, the propaganda he was getting was, well, look, Scotland's not a separate kingdom, it's really a region and I'm their overlord and they're in rebellion. And the idea of the Declaration of Arbroath was to say to the Pope, who was a big noise at that time, you know, uh, people don't care too much about the Pope, it doesn't really matter what the Pope says too much these days, but what the Pope said kind of went in those days. So the idea of this declaration was to say, no, we're a separate entity. We are a separate nation with our own laws, our own customs, and Edward I has no right to, to tyrannise us. And we have our own king. But should that king... I mean, let me read... Um, because the SNP, God bless them, are, uh, are wanted... They used to quote... You know, everywhere you went, if there was an SNP rally, there would be a... And I used to be a member of the SNP many, many years ago when it purported to believe in independence. It still purports to believe in independence. But I believed them back then. Um, and, uh, yeah, 
Okay, let's, they, they used to talk a lot about the declaration of a growth, and they, everywhere you went, you'd be in pubs, any pubs that the SNP frequented, Bannockburn and Stirling, for example, there'd always be a, a, a declaration of a growth up there. But I don't know when the last time somebody in the SNP looked at it uh, concerning their love affair with the European Union, um, because it says, yet... And it's talking about Robert the Bruce as their king. Yet, if he should give up what he has begun and agree to make his or our kingdom subject to the king of England or the English, we should exert ourselves at once to drive him out as our enemy and a subverter of his own rights and ours and make some other man who is well able to defend us and our rights as our king. For as long as but a hundred of us remain alive, never will we in any conditions be brought under English rule. It is in truth, not for glory, nor riches, nor honours that we are fighting, but for freedom, okay? For that alone, which no honest man gives up, but with his life. So the concept of freedom itself, you know? We've all heard that uh, axiom, give me liberty or give me death. You know, it's just for, for liberty alone, it's worth having in of itself. Never mind all the benefits that you get from it, just to, 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 to have your own life and make your own decisions. So that was an important document, and it was, a, 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 it was unprecedented. This was, before, this was you know, greater than Magna Carta, because Magna Carta was the barons looking after their own right. This was, this was for the people. You know, the, the people have the right to throw out their king and put in another king who will actually take care of them and look after their rights. Then, and, and it's an important document because it's, it's the basis, it's quoted as being one of the, the things that the founding fathers of the American uh, Bill of Rights and their Declaration of Independence drew on, you know? And I don't know if you'd all agree with me here, when you look at the American Constitution and you look at their Bill of Rights, I think it's a thing of beauty, you know? When it says, you know, Congress sh shall not infringe on the people's right to defend themselves, or it says that... Uh, you know, Congress shall make no law concerning the establishment of a religion or the free expression there, or the sorry, the prohibition of the free expression thereof. That's a, it's a thing of beauty, you know, it's, an, it's, it, it's just such a small, concise document. And when you, in turn, when you look at European law and it's voluminous, you know, it's like, it's like that wall, it's like a whole library of laws that it takes a team of New York lawyers to work out, you know. How is that? good for people and how is that good for liberty so the, the, the declaration of a broth was an important document in that sense then you come up a bit further to date and then uh, sorry a bit further on after we've had all our wars after we bankrupted ourselves on the Darien expedition and the whole Royal Bank, of, yeah, Royal Bank of Scotland was involved even back then the whole Royal Bank of Scotland Bank of Scotland thing and Scotland was bankrupted, and our rulers felt that there was no other thing for it but to, to go into a union with England. The people were against it, um, but a small, or a sizable corrupt uh, majority of our parliament were all for it. And it filled their own pockets as well. But it was not for the people it was done. Um, so, after that escapade, and we were, you know, we were a subdued nation, the good thing that came out of that was the Scottish Enlightenment. The Scottish Enlightenment that produced people like David Hume and Adam Smith, 
you know? These were, these were great men with great ideas, great thinkers, and um, the Enlightenment produced such, such men of science, men of literature. Um, I mean, the, you, the, the list goes on and on uh, of these guys. Uh, and I have a list of them, actually, so I don't have to do it from memory if I can find it. Um, but we'll stick with Adam Smith and David Hume for the time being. I mean, Robbie Burns, even, you know, in terms of literature. And you're, I'm going to give you a blast of Robbie Burns later on before we finish, I promise you that. Um, but there was a whole wealth of education and scientific discovery and this all came out of the Scottish Enlightenment and it was, it was regarded with awe by the rest of Europe and the rest of the world and it was uh, these people were instrumental in founding some of the things that we look upon today and take for granted you know the idea of, of, uh, of individual rights and liberties you know that there's something that, uh, that don't come from government there's something that are inherent you know if you either you want to call it God given or you want to call it just natural law you know you have these things. No, no, no government has to give you give them to you. That came out of the Scottish Enlightenment. But at some point, and I don't know where exactly, Scotland seemed to fall under the spell of socialism. Um, and socialism, it's as far as I'm concerned, it's a disease. And it's a disease that infects nations and destroys them one by one. Um, was it Winston Churchill uh, that once said that um, you know it's a philosophy of failure, the creed of ignorance, and the gospel of en envy? Its inherent virtue is the equal sharing of misery. And I, I, I'm not a big fan of Mr. Churchill for all sorts of reasons, but I, I, I kind of agree with him on that. And you've all heard the, the phrase in Scotland, I don't know if maybe you've not heard it, but uh, you know, if a man's not a socialist by the time he's 20, he has no heart. Uh, if he's still a socialist by the time he's 30, he has no brain. Um, and there's a, there's a step further I like to take it, which is if he's still a socialist by the time he's 50, he's probably Scottish. <laughs> so... Uh, <laughs> So I don't know what, what, what part of us, you know, what part of our nation saw the wisdom in this. I thought they saw the wisdom in this. Maybe it was our, our idea of uh, looking after each other, um, you know, because we were a small nation. Maybe we saw the value of that and we thought that that's where it promised. But it seems to me, looking back on my childhood uh, and going to school, the people I went to school with, the people I associated with. There's a lot of truth in, I mean, you've all heard of Thomas Sowell, I take it, uh, great economist, um, more a conservative of a libertarian, but, you know, I like it, we, we like his stuff. We're, we're fans of Thomas Sowell, aren't we? Aren't we? Um, but he wrote a book called uh, Black Rednecks and White Liberals. And in that book, he makes a conjecture that Southern, uh, not just modern black gangster culture, but southern cracker, red cracker, redneck culture. Uh, and this is not his own conjecture. I mean, he, he, he borrows um, from a, a, an author called Grady McWinnie, 
who uh, wrote a book called Cracker Culture. And there's a lot wrong with McQuinney. You know, he's, he's, he's a controversial guy. But, you know, uh, Cyril took a lot of his stuff for granted. And I'm not saying it's absolutely correct, but it seems to make sense to me that a lot of the culture in the southern states of America, especially the antebellum south before the war, came from Scots and Irish immigrants from the border regions of, of Scotland and Ireland, and especially the border regions of Scotland. And, and, you know, you find names in America to this day from these people like Elliot, Graham, Scott, Blackadder, <laughs> comes to the borders, Hume, as in David Hume, uh, Douglas, uh, a great border name. These people were what they called Reavers, okay? In America, Nixon. Nixon, uh, you know, uh, President Nixon, his family, some way back, all came. They came from the borders of Scotland. Um, Lyndon B. Johnson had some Scottish Scottish ancestry in there as well. Neil Armstrong, who famously walked in the moon, or maybe he didn't, if you believe that kind of thing. Uh, his family came from Langham in the 1970. After you know, after he'd done the moonwalk, he came to Scotland and actually visited the village of Lyme because that's where his family were. Now these people in the borders of Scotland were perforce violent. Uh, that was the times you were constantly either defending yourself from raiders from from over the border, or from other neighbouring clans, and they lived by pillage and they lived by plunder. That's what you did. The land was poor; it wasn't very good for arable farming, so you just ate what you had and when you finished that you went and you stole what belonged to your neighbour and then you lived off that and uh, you know there wasn't any hard and fast law that said that you couldn't do that you know the only crime was really getting caught or messing with somebody that was too big to mess with and they came and filled you in you know that, 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 that's that's basically what happened and I think there's a lot of truth that that, that culture of um as, uh, as Sewell puts it, and I'll quote him here in uh, Black, Rednecks and White Ribblums, uh, <laughs> Liberals, um, that the border reavers, they had an aversion to work. <laughs> they had a proneness to violence, a neglect of education, promiscuity, improvidence, drunkenness, uh, you know, and uh, a lack of entrepreneurship. Religious oratory marked by uh, strident rhetoric and unbridled emotion. Well, you know, it's like, I, 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 you know, and, and flamboyant imagery, you know. So I, I see this. I see this in my upbringing. I see it in the people that I, I mean, I came from a working class background. My father was uh, a boiler maker to trade, worked in the steelworks in Ravenscraig. Uh, and my mother was what they call a stay-at-home mom now, right? Or she was a housewife, they called it then. And they were from working class families, but they were hard workers and they were aspirational. You know, and many of my family were like that. They were hard workers and aspirational. But there was also a lot of people in the community who weren't like that. And it was nothing, it was seen as nothing to live off the dole. You know, it's like, well, you know, what's... They owe me, you know. This, this is. Uh, I'm not robbing anybody, you know. Not only will I live off the dole, but while I'm getting dole, I'll, I'll, I'll do work on the side as well. And nobody thought anything about that, you know. It's just what you did to make ends meet. So that kind of attitude of plunder and being owned, owed a living, was kind of prevalent in Scotland. Uh, and 
Cyril uh, says that that is the root of you know the cracker culture and the root of uh, black gangster culture in America today. And whether it's true or not, I can actually I can actually see where he's coming from. And I think it's possibly the roots of the welfare state and the dependency culture that's in Scotland and to a certain extent in the north of England because they were border you know sort of reavers as well and they lived in that kind of culture. So I think that's what that's what shaped it. That's that, that's what shaped a lot of uh, uh, Scottish way of socialist stinking thinking. You know, I've got a right. I've got a right to that. I've got a right to take what somebody else has because I have nothing. So that was the Reavers, and I think that's responsible for a lot of what uh, what represents or purports to represent our nation today. Then you come to something like the National Covenant. National Covenant was another document written up in Scotland uh, between... Okay, Charles I as a king decided that he wanted to impose his method of worshipping God on the Scottish people. Okay, He was an Episcopalian, therefore he wanted his subjects to be Episcopalian. And he was an absolute monarch and he believed in absolute monarchy. He did no truck with this idea of a constitutional monarchy. You know, that's the, that was the tail wagging the dog as far as he was concerned. And he wanted to impose, it, it made sense to him, it had a liturgy, you know, there was none of this diversification of this person says that thing and that person says the next thing. No, we'll have the one liturgy, one word and we'll have unity. And he tried to impose that in Scotland and there was rebellion. Uh, people said the king has no right to impose his, uh, you know, religious viewpoint on people and force them to accept his form of religion. There should be freedom of religion. Unfortunately, the National Covenant then gave way to the Solemn League and Covenant. And this is about 1638. And the Solemn League and Covenant then became the opposite of what it set out to do. The Solemn League and Covenant then tried to force the king to then enforce everybody else to accept Presbyterianism and enforce Presbyterianism in England. So in effect, from starting out from being this good idea of freedom of worship and you know the government and the king has no right to tell you what to do in terms of worship, it degenerated into basically the Covenanters, as they were called, became like the Taliban. If you ever see a picture or a statue of John Knox, he looks exactly like Osama bin Laden. <laughs> right? And the, you know, the, that that sort of uh, religious fervour and religious fascism was prevalent here in Scotland and it was the roots of the the religious divide that I experienced. I mean, most of you here are, are, are young enough that you won't thankfully experience the religious divide that I experienced when I was a kid growing up in the west of Scotland. My parents had to go and try and find jobs in places where there was openly signs up saying Roman Catholics need not apply. You know that was that was prevalent, and uh, that that was the roots of it. This war between uh, this religious war between Roman Catholics, who also tried to impose their way of, of looking at things on first of all onto the Presbyterians, and then the Presbyterians then in turn doing it back to them, and it's just madness. The one saving grace that Scotland has in terms of religiosity is, as far as I know, Scotland is the one nation possibly in the world, but definitely in Europe, or one of the only nations in Europe, that has no uh, institutional record of anti-Semitism. 
they had it in England. There were several kings that were there were some kings that were predisposed to, to, to the to the Jews. Oliver Cromwell was very favourable towards the Jews. Um, but there were some kings who weren't. There were some kings who forced them to wear the yellow star and to wear pointy hats and just distinguish themselves and live in sort of little shtetls or ghettos. Scotland never really had that. There was never a, a, an institutionalised anti-Semitism in Scotland. So as though we were screwed up religiously, we weren't that screwed up. And in the end, things did get better. And things are better now than, than they've ever been uh, in terms of religious... Uh, well, I was going to say they're better than they've ever been in terms of religious t- tolerance. We'll come on to where there, there could be problems with that. So we've touched on the Enlightenment. We've touched on the Covenant being an important document. Um, so let's bring it up to date. I'll start by talking a wee bit about the Scottish Libertarian Party. Okay, the Scottish Libertarian Party was formed, the bare bones of it, about five years ago, Katrina. Okay, Daniel uh, Logan Scott. Uh, an American living in Scotland, uh, yourself, and probably John Watson. That was it. That was that was the, that was the Scottish Libertarian Party, but affiliated to the UK Libertarian Party. Um, as time goes on, others join. I came in there uh, about four years ago, and we decided that not for any really nationalistic reasons. It was the way the wind was blowing. What was the point of being the part of the, the UK party? You know, we're here, we're in Scotland, we're part of the Scottish political scene. Let's just make it the Scottish Libertarian Party. Um, the UK Libertarian Party had a clause in their uh, constitution that had to be changed but in order to allow us to do that. So it took some time, but we got it done. And not long after that we became a party in our own right, uh, I think I stood for... Um, Edinburgh Leith Walk in a by-election. John Watson uh, convinced me to do that. And I was glad I'd done it. It was great. We had a blast. Anthony was involved as well. Um, I got a, I got a whopping uh, 37 votes, I think I got, in, in Leith Walk. The guy who was the guy who was an independent, right, who didn't who didn't even turn up to any of the hostings or do any leaflets, he got more than me, he got forty odd votes. But he had a massive family who all voted for him. Right? So uh, so that was enjoyable, you know? And since then the party has gradually grown. The logos that you see here today, um, the Scottish Libertarian Party logos. I believe Fraser, you're responsible for the artwork. Okay, yeah, Fraser's involved in that. Um, does anybody know about the colours other than other than you? Uh, do you know Do you know why we have the, the colours that we have here? It's, okay, it's not yellow and blue. It's, it's actually buff and blue. Does anybody know the, the significance of the buff and the blue? The Whig party. The Whigs. Yeah, it, it, that goes back to the old the old Whig party, and uh, you know. Daniel, uh, Daniel Logan Scott decided that you know that would be that would be a good thing to remind people of this uh, of, the, of of the Whigs. Uh, <laughs> yeah, first I thought it was blue for Scotland and yellow because uh, anarcho-capitalism. So you know, well, you can you can, you can interpret that in there what you want. You know, it's open to interpretation. You know, but that was the original idea behind it anyway. And uh, do we know what that is? The emblem there. 
It's the phoenix. It's the phoenix rising of the ashes. You know, and the idea was that all, even though Scotland is this socialist hellscape at the moment, one day that free market, that free market, those free market ideas that Adam Smith gave to the world and popularised, and it took off in Hong Kong, it took off in Singapore, and it's took off in other places, and it took off in America massively in its early days, that those ideas will eventually come back here and take root and like a phoenix it's going to rise from the ashes and well you know we're all part of that today that's why I feel so privileged and honoured to be part of something right from square one you know to build something to see it growing and know that you're actually part of history everybody that's sitting here today is part of history you know Um, as small as it is so yeah so the buff and the blue, that was the white colours, and there's a poem coming up for you then, You Lucky People, by Rabbi Burns with the buff and the blue in it. Um, so, that's where we came from. Where we are now, uh, as I say, we just put up our candidates in the council elections. Um, it's not about votes, guys, not for me anyway, and I'm sure most of the people here would agree. If we go chasing after votes, then you have to start compromising and diluting the message. And I don't believe in doing that. I think what makes us unique and what makes us different is the fact that we do have a, a, a we have a principled stance on things. I mean, for example, like Anthony was talking earlier on about uh, the minimum wage laws, you know, and it's it's absolutely great to give people hell we economics and uh, a utilitarian argument on it. It's good. I believe in the principled argument, which is my labour is my personal property and the government has no right to interfere in the contract between me and an employer. Because if they can tell me how little, uh, sorry, how much how much you know, minimum wage, then that same government can then turn around and say how much your maximum wage can be. Then it can tell you where to work, then it can tell you when to work, then it can tell you what job that you're going to do, whether you like it or not. That's the principled stance for me. The government has no right to tell me who I can work for, when I can work, or how much I can charge for my labour, which is my property. So that's, you know, we're, we're a party of principles. And then from, when, you, when you've got core principles, from those principles, then you can extrapolate uh, policy. You know, instead of policy, you think, okay, well, look, we haven't seen this thing before. This is something new. What do our principles say? And how do our principles affect how this policy is going to be shaped? Um, it seems to me if we if you dilute your message, um, then suddenly people then can't tell the difference between you and all the rest of the mainstream parties. They might as well vote conservative if you're going to dilute the core principles that you have, and it's unpalatable. That's a fact. You know, people. You, 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 as somebody once quite adroitly put it, you're trying to sell Christmas to turkeys. You know, it's. See all this free stuff you've got, people? We're going to take it away from you. And not only that, we're not going to give you any more. But in return, we're going to give you liberty. We're going to give you the ability to take care of yourself. Instead of relying on government to take care of you and push you around and tell you what to do, because that's what will happen. Government will exact a price for its services. I think if we don't dilute that message, it's going to take some time. It's going to take, I think, maybe... 10 years before people start to get it, before the penny drops on any grand scale. It's going to be hard work. It's difficult to watch. It's difficult to go to Huston's and stand up in front of a room full of people and try and give account 
you know, you're the unpopular guy. But hey, that that's nobody said it was going to be easy. I I done a hustings in Edinburgh uh, for Peter actually, because Peter was standing for Edinburgh Central, Edinburgh Centre, and he didn't want to do it for whatever reason. He couldn't do it. So I decided to stand in, and it was mainly, it was it was a NIMBY night. It was people from the grass market in Edinburgh, and grass markets are busy. Well, it always has been. It was ever thus. They used to have hangings there, public floggings and stuff like that. So it was always busy, and it was always noisy. But everybody had a bee in their bonnet about Airbnb, okay? Airbnb was the devil itself. Right. I've got people next door, I've got flats next door to me, I've got flats upstairs to me, it's full of hen nights and it's full of stag do's and I can't get any peace at night and like, you know, this is when are you going to get, when are you going to start regulating this Airbnb? And I'm the guy that had to stand up and say, well, I don't want to regulate Airbnb, in fact, I want to deregulate more and I want to see more type Airbnb type things. That was a hard sell, believe me. And what really hacked me off that night and it was, Peter's gig, it wasn't mine, otherwise I might have been a bit more robust in some of my responses, but there was an older guy and he was, he took most of the floor for most of the night and uh, he was giving everybody hell, you know, and then basically having a go at the council for being toothless, which the council is toothless. Uh, and that's something we would like to change as a party, is to is to devolve a lot of that power away from central government to, to into local communities so that people can make their own decisions and don't... And, you know, the council doesn't have to be toothless. But I had some sympathy for him, you know, and he asked me a question and I couldn't quite answer it probably because I don't know the machin. I'm not involved, I'm not, I've never been a councillor, so I don't really know the machinations of how the council works. So I couldn't answer his question, you know, as succinctly as I would have liked to. So at the end of the thing, I went up to him and I spoke to him and I said, uh, sorry I couldn't answer your question, sir. Uh, I'll need to do some more homework. And uh, he immediately saw me as some sort of dog that was cringing to him, like you know, and kind of like he said, he raised himself up and he went, "Okay, let me tell you something. <laughs> let me tell you this. This is not America, okay?" And uh, I was like, "Okay, thank God you told me that. I thought I'd step through some sort of rip in the time-space continuum. <laughs> Arrived in America. He's like, "This is not America." And you're not the tea party. Let me tell you how we do things here in this country, right? We look after each other, okay? We're all about community. And like, by the way, you know, I said, well, I'm, I'm a libertarian, you know, but I'm, I'm, we're, you know, as Hans Hermann Hoppe has said, like, you know, libertarian society would needs must be more communitarian, not communist, but communitarian. I said, I'm all for the community, but you know, give me a chance. You just sort of bulldozed over the top of me and says, no, you know, we don't need that. If you want that. Why don't you go and live in America? I was like, oh God. Here, you know, have you ever heard the Adam Smith? You ever heard the David? You ever heard the, you know, this this libertarian uh, sort of ideology isn't alien. You know, it's not alien. It's not something that we're important. We gave it to the world, and now we're reclaiming it back. Um, you want to talk about an alien ideology? How about socialism? You know, something that you, you imported from Soviet Russia and try to make it work here. But as I say, it was 
it was Peter's gig, so I didn't want to screw it up for him. Uh, but I felt like saying, well, you know, let me use the same logic straight back at you. So if you don't like the noise in the grass market, why don't you F off somewhere that's quieter, you know? But uh, I managed to hold my tongue at that point. But that's what you get. You get from people that somehow libertarianism is this alien concept. Well, it's not. It's, just, it's a Scottish concept. It's as at home here as it is in America, even more at home here than it is at America. And we have to, we, you know, we have to fight for that. No, there's, a, there's, there's other obstacles to us at the moment. You know, there's, 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 there's difficulties. And they're not challenges. I don't like that word. People say it's a challenge. No, if you say to me, Tam, could you drink 15 pints of Guinness <laughs> and I'll give you 50 quid? That's a challenge. Okay, These are not challenges. These are difficulties. Um, some of the greatest obstacles we have in Scotland at the moment to liberty, probably I would put the top of my list, the SNP at the moment, the, I don't know if you've got a chance to read this. This is a leaflet I picked up at the note in name person uh, meeting in Edinburgh. Name person is uh, an insidious piece of legislation hatched by the, the SB. And, and these things have always it's always think of the children, you know. That you have to you have to you know something must be done. And I, you know, I had my sympathies to to any child who's who's gone through uh, abusive parenting. But I don't think the answer is for the state to interfere in the family. It's a, it's a basic start of a tyranny. The first thing any tyranny does, whether it's the Soviet Union, whether it's Nazi Germany, whether it's Pol Pot in Cambodia, the first thing they did was attack the family. And, even the, and thankfully, now don't get me wrong, when I say this, the Supreme Court overturned the name Person Act that the SNP are bringing in. Uh, and if you're not familiar with it, just get one of these leaflets that are up at the back there and, and, and familiarise with yourself with it, because it's, it's tyrannical. Um, but the Supreme Court in the UK uh, blocked it and said, you're going to have to go and have a rethink about this. And I, 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 I like... Now, don't get me wrong. If the Supreme Court had said it was OK, it'd still be wrong. OK, it's not a matter of what the Supreme Court thinks, but I'm just glad that they, they come up with this. And uh, the quote from the UK Supreme Court judgment on the name person, paragraph 73, is, there is an extricable link between the protection of the family and the protection of fundamental freedoms in liberal democracies. Different upbringings produce different people. The first thing that a totalitarian regime tries to do is to get at the children, to distance them from their subversive, varied influences of the families and indoctrinate them into their ruler's view of the world. Within limits, families must be left to bring up their children in their own way. And that, that's a, you know, I, I couldn't put it better myself. But the SNP are trying to bring that in. They tried to get rid of corroboration so that you wouldn't need two policemen to, you know, to, to corroborate their story against you. It would only take one policeman, that would be enough. Uh, they've brought in uh, other draconian laws. They're going to try and tell you... Well, Give me an example, somebody, another... Uh, you can't buy uh, less than a 30 gram packet of tobacco now. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you, And also you cannot... You, all tobacco and cigarettes... I mean, I don't smoke. I personally, I hate smoking. Can't stand it. Never Fuck could. <laughs> well, only if you give me a fag. Uh, so <laughs> so uh, I, can't, I really can't stay. But I think people have the right to do it. You know? And... 
to, to suggest that putting plain packaging on packets of cigarettes is somehow going to help. I don't know. I noticed there's a lot of heroin about in certain parts of Scotland at the moment. And as far as I know, the last time I looked, it comes in plain packaging. Right? And I don't think it's ever stopped. As Fraser and I were talking earlier and saying, like, you know, I don't think anybody says, well, I got addicted to heroin because it came in such a nice package. I just couldn't resist it. You know? And it's idiotic. You know? We're living in a situation... You're the, the, you know, Jim Sellers, God bless him, I mean, the man's a socialist, but one day, maybe one day he'll get over it. He's one of these guys over 50 that's still a socialist. But he's, you know, he's, he's been the voice of reason within the SNP at times. And he, he said of Nicola Sturgeon, you know, having started out on a false premise, her string of claims and demands have exposed someone whose tongue has run far away ahead of her brain. There's a fatal flaw in the SNP position. It's blind to the real nature of the EU. You know, and he was talking about the SNP in, in, in connection with the EU. That's another insane thing about the SNP. They purport to be for independence. Now, look, a lot of people here will be ANCAPs, and it won't matter. You go, look, the state's a state. It doesn't matter whether it's a UK state or whether it's the Scottish state or whether it's a European state. I think the smaller that we can make the state, the better. You know, if you, know, if you want to get rid of it, great. But as a, a good start... Let's not have huge government like the EU. Let's not even a slightly bigger, uh, slightly bigger government as like the, the UK. Let's bring the government as close as we possibly can. It's easier to convince six million people of your argument than it is to convince sixty-six million people, and that's that's kind of the way I look at it. But you know, uh, the offensive behaviour at football act—that's another one that the SNP have, have brought in. You know, you can be arrested for singing a song, uh, and people have. Not only in Scotland, you could be at a football game overseas, someone could film you singing a song that's deemed objectionable. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not defending the songs themselves. You know, some of them are horrible, whether it be the, the ones on the Celtic side or whether it be the ones on the Rangers side. I mean, I have no time for that. I'm not even a football fan. But it's a song, you know, and, Celtic, and football games are heated. And the idea that you could film somebody singing a song overseas and as soon as they get off the plane back here in Scotland, they can be arrested. Madness. Apparently you can vote and decide the destiny of a nation when you're 16. But you cannot buy alcohol and have a drink at your own wedding. <laughs> right? Or, have, or buy cigarettes at your own wedding when you're 16. I, I don't understand how... I, where is the... I don't understand the arbitrary way that they have a looking at these, these this, this age thing. Or cutlery for your kitchen drawer. <laughs> What's that? You can't even buy cutlery for your kitchen drawer. Can you not? It's a good job I don't buy cutlery until you're 18. Okay. <laughs> it gets worse, you know. Uh, they're gonna I mean I used to have an air rifle when I was a kid I mean like you're supposed to be 17 to have one I had one I was about 13 or 12 me and my brother used to shoot hell at each other with air rifles like, you know, I'm not suggesting that's a good thing but we used to do it um, it's it's just government they, they, they it's not even nanny to call it a nanny state is to try and make it something benign you know it's just tyranny and these people don't see it. You know, there's nothing worse. I think it was a C.S. Lewis that said, you know, that at least the robber baron eventually, when he's got what he wants, will leave you alone. But when you're tyrannised by those who tyrannise you for your own good, they'll never be done. You know, and the, the SNP have all the hallmarks of that. So, uh, Police Scotland, 
the start of political policing in Scotland, uh, the merging of all the police forces into one, with one uh, chief constable who would be answerable to the government, <laughs> although I think it was the other way around with Mr House. Um, he's gone now, but it still remains the same shambles. But it's political policing. The police are there to do the bidding of the government, rather than protect and serve the public and preserve, uh, preserve the rights and the property of the individual. You try and get a hold of the police now because your property rights have been violated, they're not interested. It's, but if you sing a song, you'll be arrested. There are people actually physically assaulting people and getting away with, you know, admonitions and warnings and, you know, small fines. And yet, if you say something horrible on Facebook about somebody, you're going to get a visit from the police. I mean, you've all, you, do you all know about Count Dankula? Okay, right. I don't know if his case has come up yet. Now, don't get me wrong, people say it was because he taught the dog to do a Hitler salute. Uh, that wasn't quite the thing. He, uh, okay, for, for those of you who don't know, uh, who might be watching this, Count Dankula was a Scottish guy. He, uh, he's a YouTube uh, broadcaster. Uh, don't you hate those guys? <laughs> and uh, he, for a laugh, thought it'd be a good you know, wheeze. His girlfriend apparently was a bit of a kind of right-on lefty and she had a cute little pug dog, if you find those kind of things cute. And he thought it would be a laugh to wind her up to teach the dog to do a Nazi salute. However, the trigger for the dog to do that was he would say, gas the juice. <laughs> so he said, yeah, so he's like, gas the juice, and the dog done that. So people objected and he found himself getting a visit from... I think it was up to five policemen. He was arrested, charged, and he's charged with hate crimes. His, his, his case is going to come up. Uh, and it's been dragged on and on. Uh, the cost to himself, personally, in terms of monetary terms, I don't know whether he's, well, could not, might not be him. It might be the state who's paying for his, uh, for his, for his legal fees. Um, but in terms of the cost, in terms of his social life, in terms of his... Uh, all right, you could argue it was a stupid thing to do, but is it really worth arresting somebody for that? Where is the harm, injury, or loss? I demand to know. So that's so that's the SNP. I don't really need to say much more about them. I've gave them far too much publicity, to be quite honest with you. The Labour Party, well, they're not much better. Feminism, it's the illiberal and tyrannical side of that is pervading the universities. For that, I feel foolish telling anybody here who's a, who's a student about universities, you'll know. Edinburgh University's terrible for, you know, safe spaces, trigger warnings, um, forcing young men to go on, you know, sexual awareness courses, which are, of course, you know, or gender awareness courses, which are, in fact, feminist courses. Um, and these are all attacks on liberty and on free speech. But nobody sees it like that, you know, um, and we have, to, we have to be the ones out there making that point. Um, environmentalism, uh, with the emphasis on mental. Uh, you've got the Green Party, or as I like to call them, the SNP Gerdinand Division. Uh, you know, okay, you say, okay, Tom, come on, like, who's not against it? It's not as if I want to go around setting fire to tires and dumping them in rivers. Like, everybody cares about the environment. But there is stuff that is going on in the environmental movement at the moment, which is just 
nonsensical, you know, and it's, it's got nothing to do with any science. And again, it's the tyrannical approach. If you've got anything to say, you say, well, okay, I don't think the science in this is self. Uh, on the climate change. I think there's still room for debate. No, you're a denier. You know, you're up there with Holocaust deniers. You're in that same bracket. You know, you're an enemy of the state. You know, you have to be stamped out. And it's became a religion. And a religion that's going to get rammed down your throat. It's going to get rammed down your, the, the throat of your kids if you have them in a public school. So there's environmentalism. Um, and there's also, can I just say, the last thing, the last thing that is remotely a threat to your personal liberty and freedom is militant Islam. It may be a well it's not maybe, it can be a danger to your physical person, but I don't think it's any danger whatsoever to to, to our our freedom of speech. They don't have that kind of power. The only people who can affect who have are in more in, in danger of affecting that are people who want to ban us from singing songs, ban us from saying things, ban us from having meetings and, and, and introduce illiberal laws. Militant Islam doesn't have the ability to introduce illiberal laws. The government does, you know? So there's that. But these are problems that are not insurmountable. They're tough. They're difficult. It's hard. It's going to take time. But I think the battle... If not one, look, I think the fight is worth fighting just for the sake of it. Even if we don't win it, I think it's it's the fight is worth fighting um, because somebody has to do it. When they look back, you know, in, in years to come, if the lunatics do take over the, the asylum, if the Corbynites do decide to go down the road of you know unbridled socialism, you know, when when the smoke clears and people survey the wreckage. You know, they're going to ask, was there anybody kicking and screaming against this? Was there anybody, was there a voice that said, look, this is madness? Well, it ain't the Tories. You know, they're not, they're not going to, you know, what are they going to do? They've actually joined the bandwagon. You know, the Conservatives are actually a socialist party. So it's got to be us. If not us, who else? So that's the problems. But... In terms of the future, as a party, I think we're only going to go from strength to strength. This is a good thing here today. Uh, we've got some ideas about stuff that we want to do in the future. The stuff that divide us as libertarians. Um, it seems to me that the, the big divides are still on abortion, you know, the right to choose versus the right to life. For some people, that's, that's a clear-cut case. You know, I think one way, Anthony thinks another. Um... And that's a debate that we have to have. But there's, you know, I'm, I'm absolutely convinced that libertarian good sense will prevail. Intellectual property rights is another argument that libertarians have. Uh, Israel, another stumbling block that is an argument amongst libertarians. Uh, immigration has recently become a, a, a stumbling block. But these things, you know, as the Apostle Paul said in the New Testament, there needs be heresies among you so that that which is the truth becomes manifest. We need to have these debates and we need to respect each other's opinions within the liberty. It's no good just going, you're not a libertarian because somebody comes up with an idea that's slightly you know, off kilter. It has to be debated, it has to be talked through. But the saving grace is, even though we've got these differences, what we all agree on is that we don't know how to run or centrally run an economy. And that's, you know, Anthony and I have talked about this before. That's 
that's a good starting point, you know, because that way we don't have to force each other to carry out our own, you know, our particular idea of economic madness. Um, I don't know if you've uh, ever heard of a guy, he's called Bill Phillips. Bill Phillips is a guy, he was from Croydon. Uh, I think, or he lived in Croydon, I think he was originally from New Zealand. Um, and he invented a machine. It was called the Monetary National Income Analog Computer, right? Moniac, it was called for short. Uh, after the war, you know, he'd been a Japanese prisoner of war camp. He was a clever guy, he was an engineer. He decided to take um, old World War II bomber parts, Lancaster bomber parts, cobble them together and run water through them and turn them into a machine that could <laughs> predict economic outcomes. I don't, don't ask me how it worked, right? But th this, is what he, this is what he done. And he built about 12 of these machines. I think there's still a working one left in Cambridge University. But they went far afield. The, the, the monetary department in Guatemala had one. And, all the, yeah, and they were fine-tuned, you know, for the amount of water to run through them and so forth, so that that particular country could make predictions about their economy on how this machine worked. Now, if that sounds absolutely absurd, <laughs> it's no different to how governments are actually trying to run economies today. They're still trying, okay, it's not as crude as that, but they're still trying to use a machine. And there's that old uh, adage of uh, Bastia, Frederick Bastia, and I know Anthony's a big fan of Bastia, and he got me into him, and I think he's fantastic as well. There's some books up the back from Bastia as well. And I don't know if you've ever heard of uh, the, the Who Feeds Paris question. At some point in the 1880s, uh, Bastia took a trip to Paris and he had an epiphany, okay? On entering Paris, which I had come to visit, I said to myself, here are a million human beings who would all die in a short time if provisions of every kind ceased to flow toward this great metropolis. Imagination is baffled when it tries to appreciate the vast multiplicity of commodities that must enter tomorrow through the barriers in order to preserve the inhabitants from falling a prey to the convulsions of famine, rebellion and pillage. And yet, all sleep at this moment, and their peaceful slumbers are not disturbed for a single instant by the prospect of such a frightful catastrophe. On the other hand, 80 departments have been labouring today without concert, without any mutual understanding for the provisioning of Paris. How does each succeeding day bring what is wanted? Nothing more, nothing less, to so gigantic a market. What then is the ingenious and secret power that governs the astonishing regularity of movements so complicated, a regularity in which everybody has implicit faith, although happiness and life itself <laughs> Uh, are at stake. Well, we know what it is. It's 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 the it's the market. You know, it's the same as what feeds Glasgow. You know, there's no government department that 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 feeds Glasgow. That's in charge of coffee. That's in charge of tea. That's in charge of biscuits or iron brew. It just happens, and it happens because there's a demand for it, and that's how the market works. It's it's, it's brilliant in its simplicity, and that's Adam Smith's hidden hidden hand at work there. So anyway, taxation, taxation's a big problem and it's got to go. If we don't solve the taxation problem, then we're kind of wasting our time. As long as government has got the power to forcibly remove your money and property, then we're in trouble. 
So I know a lot of people don't like hearing taxation is theft, but I think it's a great mantra because it happens to be true. Taxation is theft. So, you know, we, sh we should never be ashamed of that. We should never be ashamed of capitalism. Let the Conservatives do that. Uh, so, in closing then, uh, just before I read you my Robert Burns, as I, as I promised, uh, I'll thank you all again for coming. And thanks to Abe and Auntie, etc. again for making this possible. As I said, it's been, and Peter, <laughs> it's been my very great privilege to be here and my honour to have led the Libertarian Party to this point and hopefully beyond. I would say to a new dawn, <laughs> but that sounds a bit pretentious, if not to a new dawn, at the very least to an awakening. To any of you out there in the room who are watching this, or, or sorry, watching this on, the, on YouTube, uh, I would ask you to think seriously about making a commitment to, if not joining, I know as libertarians are loath to join things, listen, <laughs> she'll tell you, what did I say the first meeting of us is? Listen guys, I, I'm not, I'm never joining, I've done with political parties, okay? I've done with it, I don't mind supporting you, don't mind getting involved, but don't ask me to join. <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, and then don't ask me to leave the party, <laughs> but anyways. So here I am. Yeah, we need we need members. Like even if you don't believe in the state, even if you don't believe that the political I don't believe in the political process. You know, it's just a way of getting attention to our cause, you know. When people see your name in the ballot, when they see a candidate, uh, it causes them to say, Okay, well, what's that about? You know, it might be the first time they've ever heard of libertarianism, you know? It's not one thing. Yes, I agree, you can achieve more. Doing things in the community. You know, our guy down in uh, Kilmarnock, he's got an idea about libertarians in the community, you know, wearing a t shirt, libertarians in the community, getting involved in litter picking or, or, or anything to do something practical. All these things are good. There are, you know, find ways of making, making the state redundant, you know, whether it's Bitcoin or, you know, finding ways of, of, of doing things differently that make the state irrelevant. Those are all good as well, you know, but. It's a, it's a two-fisted approach, you know? We've got to bludge, we've got to beat the state to death, um, really. And it's just another tool in the box is to get involved in elections, get invited to Huston's, be able to speak and, and let people know your point of view. So we need members. More importantly, we need activists. We need people who are prepared to roll the sleeves up and get involved and get dirty, whether it's leafleting, uh, whether we have a, a, a campaign day. We had one in the Meadows in Edinburgh recently. It was pretty good. It's enjoyable, you know, especially if it was a nice day like this, rather than be stuck in a room outside, talking to people, handing out leaflets and, and just enjoying the sunshine and, and, and having a chinwag with people. It's, it's brilliant. And then having a good social after it as well. We need support in terms of financial support. Every party needs money. Everything's got to be paid for. You know, that's room today has got to be paid for. So, I mean, at the end of it, guys, fiver ahead. If you can give more, all to the better. If you can buy any books, that's fantastic as well. Spread the word. If you're a student, or even if you're not a student, get involved in what, what Abe's got to offer. Get on the Facebook page. Look at our website. Auntie's wrote some great articles on there that, you know, that will help you in your dealings with, uh, with talking to people. Don't waste your time too much with people who are, who are just died in the wool. You know, you, you, we can get around to them at a later date. Concentrate on people who are curious, people who are actually willing to listen.
to what you have to say. And there's some good resources on their website and it's getting better. It's going to get better all the time. But get involved, please do, um, and get active. We really do need activists. Um, we have a treasurer at the moment. He's struggling. <laughs> uh, we've got, you know, we just need troops. We need boots on the street. And so if you, if you want to get involved, please do. Even if it's just to turn up to the meetups, you know. If it's nothing else, it's a, it's a support group, <laughs> mutual support group for libertarians. So, and look back one day and be able to say, you know, that you made a difference. Um, that's it from me. And uh, thanks very much for listening, guys. Buns. Oh, the buns are Rabbi buns. <laughs> Rabbi. Okay. Just pardon me while I whip this out. <laughs> This one that is. Yeah, exactly. You haven't seen Blazing Saddles, have you? Okay. Poem by the famous Scottish poet Robert Burns. He of the Enlightenment that I mentioned earlier. It's called uh, Here's a Health to Them That's a War. Here's a health to them that's a war. Here it's health to them that's a war. And while when I wish good luck to our cause, may never good luck be their fall. It's good to be merry and wise. It's good to be honest and true. It's good to support Caledonia's cause and bide by the bluff, the buff and the blue. Here's a health to them that's a war. Here's a health to them that's a war. Here's a health to Charlie, the chief of the clan, although that his band may be small. May liberty meet with success. May prudence protect free for evil. May tyrants and tyranny tend to the mist and wander away with the deal. Thank you very much. Too kind. Too kind or too desperate to leave.